Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Switch your home to Sky Broadband today. See sky.ie for more. Hello and welcome to Inside Politics, the weekly and sometimes more than weekly podcast about politics from the Irish Times. I'm Pat Leahy. On Monday, the Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue, and the Minister for Public Expenditure, Michael McGrath, published the government's summer economic statement. It's one of the key budgetary documents of the year and sets the parameters for the October budget, or it used to be the October budget, it's now moved to late September. Donoghue and McGrath responded to the clamour for additional state support for people feeling the cost of living squeeze by signalling they would increase the budget day package to €6.7 billion, providing more money for a tax package and other spending increases. But under questioning from the Irish Times at the subsequent press conference, the ministers also confirmed that there would be other once-off measures on budget day, many likely to be similar to the back-to-school and energy supports that have already been announced. Because these will be one-off grants, they will not expand what ministers call the base. In other words, they won't reoccur next year. They'll be funded by bulging receipts from corporation tax, which have led to an unexpected surplus of over €4 billion in the first half of the year, a development that Donoghue and McGrath were keen to talk down in a document that is, despite the current health of the public finances and the strength of the economy, filled with foreboding about the future. So, glass half full or glass half empty? Brace yourselves for a recession, or time to spend big to help people struggling with the cost of living. To discuss all this, I'm joined by our political correspondent, Cormac McQuinn, and I'm delighted to say by the Labour Senator and Economist, Marie Sherlock. So Cormac, two days after the summer economic statement, it's one of the big kind of budgetary set pieces, setting the framework for the October budget, or as it is now, the September budget. How has it been greeted around Leinster House? How has it been greeted inside, outside government? I think it's going to be something of a, a stopgap measure in, in the government in that they, they've signalled that they've got all of these massive tax revenues of, you know, approaching £9 billion to, to splash around in the budget later this year, albeit they will use the usual caution, you know, Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGrath. But uh, they have a lot of money to spend, £6.7 billion package, £3 billion of which will, will go on uh, commitments already made due to demographics and, and uh, other measures that have been pre-committed to budget. There's, there's, you know, 3.7 billion of of new spending. That's a billion in, in tax measures, presumably the the kind of tax cuts that that Fine Gael in particular have been calling for, and then the, the rest, uh, the 2.7 odd billion for for expenditure measures that would be social welfare increases, uh, increased childcare supports for parents, things like that. So, you know, they've made the promise that it's coming, the budget is coming, it's going to be two weeks early, September 27th. Um, will it keep the wolf from the door in terms of, uh, you know, particularly coalition backbenchers? Kind of remains to be seen at the, the parliamentary party meetings for Fine Gael uh, tonight and, and uh, potentially Fianna Fáil as well uh, might might give some indication on how, how that's all being received within the party. Eh? Of course, both both had their uh, their pre-budget meetings last week where where literally you know hundreds of of budget demands were made everything from double digit welfare increases to you know uh, 
not technically budget related, but uh, keeping the pension age at 66. So, you know, the, the demands are there, the, 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 um, the expectations are there. Uh, it's going to be a long three months before before we find out if the, the budget uh, meets them. Meanwhile, the opposition, of course, are still calling for emergency budgets to deal with the cost of living crisis that, that families are currently experiencing. The government has has for weeks been saying that they're, they're resisting this notion. They want to bring in a comprehensive package in the autumn that will, will get through a tough winter. Some of the measures will kick in before the end of 2022. But already there's been a, a kind of a, a weakening of that stance uh, just, just yesterday with the announcement of increased supports in relation to back to school. Uh, this extra €100 Euro on the back to school clothing and footwear allowance for, for families with, uh, with lower incomes and, uh, and school meals and desk schools. You know, that that is... You know, it's something that wasn't technically expected given the, the signals coming out of government, but it's maybe an acceptance that uh, that some measure, measures can't wait until the end of September. Marie, you're, we have you here wearing uh, two hats, one as an economist and uh, one obviously as Labour Party senator. Um, we, we'll give you a short period of time at the start to wear your Labour Party hat, uh, uh, but I want you to take that hat off pretty quickly and, and put on your economist hat and give us your reaction to this. Okay, well, Pat, I suppose, look, you know, mi- mixing both hats, if I can do that, I think the thing is, like, you know, the summary economic statement, when I read it, to me, there's a fundamental inconsistency at the heart of the, the summary economic statement because it's at pains to relate to us that the period we're in now is very different to the pandemic uh, and therefore that money cannot be effectively thrown at the crisis. And yet we see the very proposals, like the one billion taxation package is effectively designed to uh, put a very small amount of money in a lot of people's pockets. And there's a a failure to recognise that we have a permanent cost of living crisis in this country with regards to housing, with regards to childcare, with regards to fuel poverty. And and so rather than using the money to make a very real and tangible difference in the lives of many people, particularly with regards to childcare costs or housing or, or, or whatever else, you know, there's a question here about the government's priorities. And I think there is, uh, you know, if I, if I can say it, a dishonesty in terms of what's being promised. Jeez, you can say what you like. (laughs) But the thing is, like, you know, we're hearing so much about putting money back in people's pockets. And if you look at the proposal for the indexation of tax bans, now look, we all would love to see the indexation of tax bans, right? There are issues in the income tax system. But when you look at the here and now and how we best use the money that we have in the here and now, like to increase the the standard tax ban by €1,500, would give an average worker, an average worker last year earned 44,000 euros in this country. They would get five euros and about 70 cents more in take-home pay per week. Now, show me any young worker who would say to me, five euros and 70 cents is going to make a difference to that housing, you know, their issues and trying to, to rent somewhere, you know, here in Dublin or anywhere else in the country, or five euros to a family in terms of trying to pay for childcare, or, or five euros to an older person in terms of, of trying to deal with their fuel inefficient household. So I think, you know, th- this issue of a, a, a bit of, con- you know, sprinkling a bit of confetti in everybody and hoping for a bit of a feel good effect, that's not going to last. People now realise that there is a permanent cost of living crisis in this country and the government needs to step up and address it. Okay, so slip on that economist hat there uh, for a minute and tell us if you have any sympathy for the efforts that 
Pascal Donahue and Michael McGrath are evidently making to limit the, the amount of spending increases because of their concerns that these great gush of money that's coming into the exchequer from corporation tax will not be a permanent one. And because they are afraid of building permanent spending uh, commitments on the back of transitory revenues. Yeah. And look, I think we're all very clear that there is a risk with regards to the corporate tax revenues. And particularly when we see the growing dependence on a very small number of very large corporate tax payers now. So that is a risk. But of course, the key issue is what do you do with that windfall, as I see it, to the state? You know, it's it's perhaps a temporary windfall. We don't know how long it'll go on for. So, you know, we've had this debate now for a period of time as to whether a rainy day fund should be set up, whether we don't spend the money at all and we pay down our debt or we do something else. And I fall into the third category because, you know, we're, we're also being told, uh, and indeed, you know, both Minister Donoghue and Minister McGrath, you know, uh, talk to us about the climate challenge. We know that we have 10 years to make a very real difference in this country and across the globe with regards to climate. So why aren't we taking actions now that will permanently reduce the cost of living, for individual families and households, and also the cost of dependence on the state. So for instance, retrofitting is one example. So the state has acknowledged that there's a massive job to do with regards to retrofitting houses in this country. Like in the area where where I'm based in Dublin 7, 25%, almost 25% of all houses are BERF or G rated. Now there's 3,200 euros of a difference in fueling that house every year compared to a house that's B2 rated. So rather than having to pay them the fuel allowance or throw the 200 euros that we all got in the spring, why don't we actually put our efforts in to retrofitting so that there's a permanent benefit here? And I think the thing is, you know, again, like, you know, the ministers have been at pains to say that they want to try and keep a limit on spending. And I, I share the view that we need to be able to Uh, I suppose, spend what we earn from tax revenues and we have to borrow for what we need for capital. But the reality is that the government has planned for a budget surplus, a general government budget surplus. Now, Pat, you know, you and I and Cormac remember going back, you know, many years, the thought of a general government budget surplus is a rarity in this country before we saw the really good years, you know, budget years pre-pandemic. And and so the key issue here is that, you know, we need to be able to spend prudently and invest for the future as opposed to throwing money away. And, and, and so the 400 million euros that, that Minister McGrath has, has now said that he's going to, to spend this year, like mm-hmm. they've already spent 380 million in the, the 200 euros to all of us in the spring. Like there's very little wriggle room in that 400 million. But I would say... Most of that know, 400 tar- million is going to go on public sector pay increases, isn't it? Well, uh, Assuming there is a deal done, if there is a deal done. And they have to come back to the table, you know. And I must say, I I think there's been a real failure of imagination with regards to public sector pay, because the thing is, like, you know, again, uh, you know, I would be very much in the camp that we need to see permanent increases, but we also need to be able to address the, the mounting bills, the very temporary and sharp increases in the cost of living that people are addressing are dealing with. So in terms of like once-off payments, so, you know, like, and, and, and particularly when we know that 61% of all health workers in this country earn under 41,600 euros uh, every year. 
54% of all education workers earn under 41,600 euros every year. Now, not all of those are public sector workers, but of course, if they're in the private sector, many of them are benchmarked to the public sector. So So the key issue here is how do we use the money that we have available in the best way possible. And I think there is a fundamental inconsistency between what the ministers are saying, which is, you know, talking about prudence, and yet how they have spent to date, which is to throw a little bit to everybody and hope they would be all happy. Cormac, in a sense, what McGrath and who were trying to do on Monday is kind of to have their cake and, uh, uh, and eat it a little bit. Because they are, obviously there's this big headline figure of a 67 billion euro budget. But as you've pointed out, you know, once you start to break that down, there's three billion of it already accounted for by, uh, you know, the cost of demographic pressures, pre-committed spending commitments such as the existing public sector pay increases. There's a billion to go in in tax measures. That leaves 2.3 billion or so once you take out that 400 million that's likely to be used this year is about 2.3 billion for but you know you got to take things like all the programs that ministers will be pushing for all the spending increases that ministers will be looking for any future public sector pay deal what they're supposed to be doing on third level fees what they say they're going to do on defense all of a sudden that's 6.7 billion which sounds like a very big sum you begin to chip away at it pretty quickly but there's another track that ministers will be taking in advance of the, and we saw the first evidence of it yesterday, um, and that is these one-off pay, one-off likely welfare increases, a lot of them, things like the back-to-school allowance. I suspect we'd see something else on the fuel allowance uh, in, in the autumn as well. And they're in addition to this 6.7 billion figure. So on the one hand, the two budget ministers are saying, look at us, we're keeping, you know, we're keeping the increase to about 1.7 billion over what was pre-committed. That gives us a 6.7 billion euro budget. You know, it's, it's, it's generous, but it's, uh, but it's prudent. But on the other hand, there's all of this, and I suspect this is where a lot of that corporation tax money is going to end up. There's a lot of one-off uh, uh, announcements that are likely to be made on, uh, on, on budget day. So all of which is a rather long-winded way of asking you, uh, isn't it the case that we're going to see quite a lot of, you know, budget flyers and so forth over the summer as well? We're, we're going to see a lot of that, yes, for sure. I mean, the, these are the, the these once-off measures will be the, the rabbit out of the hat on budget day. The, they'll be the likes of the things that have been uh-huh. mooted, like double-week welfare payments and, and another, another €200 Euro electricity credit. Yeah, expect, expect to see a lot more suggestions for what what those things will be over over the summer, and it, I mean, I, I was listening to to Marie's some good suggestions there, but but it strikes me that things like encouraging the you know developing the retrofitting scheme, you know, and and people saving money that way is is not going to happen in any with any of the sort of speed that will be needed to uh, to ease the political pressure on the government at the moment with with Sinn Fein tabling cost of living motions every week. So, you know, yeah, expect to see a lot of suggestions over the summer for these once-off payments, but also a bit of breathing space for the government as they head towards the, the summer recess. They, they, won't be, they won't be facing these dull debates every week. And, uh, we, you know, they, they will, I suspect, breathe a sigh of relief uh, for, for a couple of months uh, as, as, the, as September approaches. Yeah, they're not the only ones. Um, Marie, the document from an economic outlook point of view is, is quite gloomy in a way it 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 points to a 
a, a difficult and worsening international situation. There's clearly concerns in the Department of Finance about the high debt. There was a technical briefing given by senior officials to political correspondents before the uh, before the announcement was made. And I noted in the course of the briefing, the description of the uh, of Ireland's debt went from high to very high to at the end of the session it was very very high. Now it's about what two hundred thirty billion uh, euros. It is high comparatively. That's clearly something that is worrying them, particularly in an environment where interest rates are going to go up. There's the whole global uncertainty over fuel prices and the threat of persistent inflation potentially leading to stagflation. Are you worried at all by that, Vista? Because there does seem to be something of a disconnect where we're looking at all this corporation tax money coming into the exchequer and we're wondering how best to spend it, whereas in fact an awful lot of the rest of the world, and if you look six months down the line, the environment that people are anticipating is one which is where your problems are very different to what do we do with all this money? Yeah, well, I think the first thing is obviously in a high inflation environment, the real value of the debt or the nominal value of the debt gets eaten away um, quite quickly. So it's important to bear that in mind. But I think the thing is, you know, we've seen repeatedly now um, from the Department of Finance for a number of years. And I think as you were um, colourfully illustrating there, you know, they've been increasing in in tone or in, in worriedness over the past uh, 12 months about the debt burden, you know, and we get figures to tell us about how much we all owe and, and, and all of that. And yet, when we actually look at the cost of debt servicing, because really, you know, when we think about it, like, is there anybody who's got a mortgage here? You think about how much you can, you know, can you deal with your mortgage payments as opposed to the overall sum of the debt? Sure, but you pay, most of us pay capital repayments on our mortgages, whereas the government doesn't really pay back the capital, it just keeps servicing the existing yeah, debt. and if right? you look at the debt maturity profile, Ireland is in very good shape. The cost is still going to go up though. Well, I, well, I, I think ultimately, Pat, the key, key issue is what are we borrowing for, right? And can we justify that? Like, is it, we're capable of, I, I, I talked earlier that the government is targeting a budget surplus for next year. So, um, so in terms of that borrowing requirement um, remains quite low at the moment. Uh, and and so I'm not as I don't buy into the doomsday um, approach that uh, some in the Department of Finance um, uh, portray. I think when you look at how the NTMA have managed um, our, our, our debt profile uh, and, you know, bear in mind that, you know, the borrowing uh, during the pandemic um, was actually less compared with the borrowing that was in the years 2017 to, to 20, uh, to, well, to, to the start of 2020. And so, you know, I think the thing is, we do need to put it in context. There is no doubt that there is a huge amount of uncertainty out there at the moment as to, um, uh, you know, borrowing costs into the future. And I do agree that, you know, we do need to watch very closely the borrowing costs of other countries. And so when we, we fall out of step with other countries, that is when we become worried. But at the moment, we're not seeing any evidence of that. And I suppose it comes back to my basic point. You know, are we are we using the windfall that we're getting now, let's say from corporation tax, to effectively um, invest in, you know, I, I suppose put into... Uh, you know, items that will reduce the cost 
of living the cost of operating this country into the future, such as housing, such as as the fuel efficiency of our houses, or, or are we doing something different with it? And so I do think we need to interrogate that doomsday approach um, with regards to the, the debt burden a, a, a lot more, because I, I think at the moment it isn't fair to relay to people that, you know, we, we have to be guided by the size of our debt burden. Um, when you look at as a share of gross national income, you know, it's, it's quite in a healthy place. It has to be watched, but let's not exaggerate it. Do you think there's a cultural problem in the Department of Finance with aversion to borrowing, investing, increasing public spending? Well, look, I think, you know, this is the classic accountants versus economists, you know, um, debate. Um, Jesus, like, is that another hat you're putting on now, for God's sake? <laughs> uh, well, I, I think the thing is, right, like, I, I understand anybody in the Department of Finance, they have a job to do, right? But, you know, in terms of making sure that the public finances, you know, are well maintained year on year. But the, there has been a failure over many years now to take a longer term perspective about the real needs in this country. And I suppose that's where I'd be most critical of the Department of Finance in terms of like, you know, previously, I suppose they were able to hide under the stability, uh, you know, the, 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 the EU fiscal rules. Um, obviously, we've had a relaxation of that now during the pandemic, and 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 and, and I I do think we like particularly when we've got this climate crisis looming over everything we do now. Um, there 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 is a failure at the heart of government and at the heart of of of, of the Department of Finance to see that investment um, is something that will reap benefits over many years and actually reduce you know the the the, the spending burden that they worry about day in day out. But I suppose, unfortunately, they're kind of focused on the here and now. And that leads to the conversation we're having, which is like the size of the debt burden and we need to reduce it. And, and then we'll be all fine. Like, you know, like when we talk in those terms, we're not looking at the lived experience of people on the ground. Cormac, the two budget ministers, Michael McGrath and Pascal Donoghue, will clearly be under pressure from their ministerial colleagues to expand the real size of the budget before... At uh, the end of September, they'll be under pressure from lobby groups. They'll be under pressure from their own backbenchers. But they'll also be under pressure from their leaders, won't they? I mean, there's there's a view in Fine Gael that, uh, that Leo Varadkar believes that Pascal Dunn, who was rather too conservative before the last election, and that's one of the things that led to a very difficult result on the day for uh, for Fine Gael. Sure, yeah. I, I, I've listened to to Leo Varadkar's broadcast interviews yesterday, and uh, he 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 was asked about his uh, proposal uh, for a thirty percent income tax rate, which which has gone had gone to, has gone to Pascal Donoghue for consultation, and he was he was he was not definitive as to whether or not. Pascal Donoghue uh, considers that a, a good idea or a bad idea. Uh, Leo himself says there was there was pros and cons, but uh, it's, it's, it was quite clear that he, he still thinks it should it should happen. Um, the the other thing, you know, yes, there, there will certainly be pressure on the, the two ministers for finance from from their party leaders as 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 the as the coalition parties seek to carve out parts of the budget that they can, can claim as their own. Varadkar himself has not been too shy about, about talking about the, uh, the things that, that he's, Fine Gael is looking for in the budget. But I, I was also struck by, by those interviews yesterday that, uh, 
you know, he, he also talked about uh, the need to use some of the surplus uh, for uh, a rainy day fund or, or to pay for future pensions, which, which I was wondering if that was indicative of the, the kind of wider jitters in, in government at the, at the economic headwinds coming, coming our way due to the, the war in Ukraine and all the rest of it. So it might not be quite as clear cut as, as party leaders making demands, but, uh, but yeah, it is, it is clear that each, each of the parties will have to come out fr- with, from the budget with wins that they can, they can go back to their backbenchers and ultimately the, the voters with in, in just over two years' time. Well, it gives me great pleasure to say that I can foresee a long summer of speculation and kite flying in advance of the budget. But for now, Cormac McQuinn and Marie Sherlock, thanks for joining us. Stay with us and we'll be back with Dennis Staunton from Westminster. Never suffer the buffer again. Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Whether you're streaming on the sofa, gaming in the bedroom, or swiping in the bathroom. I said swiping. You'll never be without it. Switch your home to 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Availability subject to location requires Sky Broadband Ultrafast. For more info, see sky.ie forward slash speeds. 99.9% reliability based on time our broadband network works across our base. Hello again. Recent days have seen the beginning of what looks like the final reckoning for the roller coaster leadership of Boris Johnson. After a former senior official in his administration revealed that the Prime Minister had, to be blunt, lied repeatedly about the appointment of a deputy chief whip with a predilection for sexual harassment, and yes, the man's name is Mr. Pincher, there's been a wave of resignations from Johnson's government, most notably by the Health Secretary Sajid Javid and the Chancellor of the Exchequer Rishi Sunak. The resignations are continuing this morning, and now Dennis Staunton joins us from Westminster. Dennis, I have previously expressed my jealousy for all the fun you're having over there. I do so again now. What is the latest from Westminster? Well, we're getting ready. uh, We're talking now on Wednesday morning and we're getting ready for Boris Johnson to appear at Prime Minister's Questions. And uh, he's got two appearances today. He's got that uh, at 12 o'clock and then at 3 o'clock he's uh, appearing before the Liaison Committee, which is the chairs of all of the common select committees. Some, you know, from very different parties, but even those from his own party are not always friendly towards him. And so uh, so he's, uh, he's in the spotlight. But what's going to happen immediately after Prime Minister's questions is that Sajid Javid, who resigned on Tuesday as Health Secretary, is going to make a resignation statement in the House of Commons. And uh, older listeners will remember that it was Geoffrey Howe's resignation statement uh, many years ago that that really started the whole process that ended uh, Mrs Thatcher's time in power. And so these moments have kind of a big resonance at Westminster. And so so that's how the day uh, so far, the early part of the day is going to play out. What happens after that is anyone's guess. And what is the message coming out from number 10? Is it, you know, we fight on, we fight on to win, as Mrs. Thatcher said, or is there a kind of a quiet acceptance that all this is probably heading towards an inevitable conclusion? 
Everything is moving very fast, but what last night and this morning, what Downing Street were saying was that uh, Boris Johnson, uh, after these resignations happened, Rishi Sunak as Chancellor and Sajid Javid as uh, Health Secretary, that he had his reshuffle. He put Nadim Zahawi in as Health Secretary, Steve Barkley, something of a loyalist, in as uh, as Health Secretary, and so uh, and then essentially said, now I've got a Chancellor of the Exchequer who'll do what I want. And Rishi Sunak was resisting the idea of tax cuts on the basis that you had to pay for them somehow. And Boris Johnson obviously wants to be uh, to, to lead a government that's going to, to spend money, cut taxes. His problem is that uh, events are moving so fast that you've had another succession of ministerial resignations this morning, a couple of junior ministerial posts. And also what's happening is that the mood among the backbenchers is becoming so sour that you could find that uh, by the time he appears at uh, Prime Minister's Questions uh, at, at 12 o'clock, that most of his own MPs uh, are are saying he ought to go. And so it's then, uh, you know, what happens is it's up to the 1922 committee of backbenchers to decide what to do next if he's not ready to go himself. I mean, it looks from here that there is an inevitable conclusion to this. There's only one outcome to this, that Boris Johnson has clearly lost the support of a majority of his uh, of his party. It's just, you know, if the conclusion is clear, the... How that is reached is not uh, is not clear, and we used to think in 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 the old days that um, uh, those men of such sartorial uh, sartorial power, the men in grey suits, would arrive to number ten and tell the prime minister that he or she ha- had to go. Is that happening at all, or is there any prospect of that happening? Of senior Tory grandees making it clear to to Johnson that in the interests of the party he has to stand down, or, or is he just not receptive to that sort of message? I think that uh, for a while we thought the men in grey suits had uh, gone into retirement, but in fact it looks like they could even come back. I mean, one of you know uh, somehow, as you say, the I think the mood at Westminster is that he's going to go, he's going to have to go, and then the question is, what's the mechanism? They tried with the backbenchers with a vote of confidence, and he won it, but forty percent of his MPs, one hundred and forty-eight of them, voted against. There's no doubt, but that if you had that vote today, that the that the result would be worse for him. What the backbenchers were waiting for was for people in the cabinet to make a move. Now some people in the cabinet have made the move, and that in part reflects the fact that they know which way the wind is blowing. That it's a question that each minister must ask himself or herself now: Is am I better off staying on this particular uh, ship right now, or should I jump off when I can? And so then the question is, do you change the rules? As at the moment, he's immune from another confidence vote for 12 months. But the executive of the 1922 committee, they can, by a simple majority, change the rules. Now, there's two ways this could happen. They're uh, going to have an election of a new group of uh, officers for the 1922 committee next week. But it may be that things are happening so fast that... Today, later on today, that the executive committee of the 1922 committee could meet and say, we're going to change the rules ourselves and we're going to have a new uh, confidence vote and he's going to lose it. Or else what they could do is simply to say uh, that, uh, you know, we're going to go and speak to him and tell him the game is up 
and uh, you know, you've got to go. If you don't go, we're going to change the rules and then we're going to get the majority, uh, you know, enough people sending in letters to trigger a contest and then you're going to go. So you can go this way or you can go that way, but one way or another, our feeling is that this is over. And looking beyond that then, assuming, and it seems inevitable, that that is the course that events take over the coming days, the election of a successor... That can take some time because you've got to go to the Tory membership, right? Yeah, it's a two-stage process. So what happens is that the MPs have a series of ballots out of which they end up choosing two candidates. And those two candidates then go uh, before the entire membership of the Conservative Party. And so what you would have would be a process probably taking a couple of weeks, maybe uh, where you choose these candidates from among the MPs, and then a, a process probably lasting another six weeks where you would choose, uh, the, the, you know, the, where the membership would then choose between these two. Now, the question then would be, what happens in the meantime? Does Boris Johnson stay on as prime minister? That's what Theresa May did. Uh, that's what David Cameron did. But the, in David Cameron's case, the process was truncated because the other person besides Theresa May was Andrea Letson, and she uh, jumped out of the contest before they uh, really had to. So, she, so Theresa May was effectively unopposed among the uh, the, the membership. And so, uh, so the question is: Would Boris Johnson stay on, or is he so damaged, and is the mood uh, so strongly against him that uh, they say, right, actually, you should go now and say Dominic Raab, Deputy Prime Minister, might step in. He has no chance of becoming leader anyway, so maybe he just says, right, I'm going to be Deputy Prime Minister and I am not going to put my name forward. And uh, so that's another possibility that you do something like that. So, uh, But you know, one way or another, it's a messy process. And you know, if this thing happens in the next couple of weeks, that he has to go in the next couple of weeks, which is uh, you know, before the summer recess, at the end of this month, then uh, that means that the contest takes place over the summer and that you would have a new leader probably in place then uh, by September and ready to go into the Conservative Party conference in October. I've asked you this before, I'm afraid I'm going to do so again, but how do you view the runners and riders for the succession? Well, again, I think that's quite dynamic. Uh, if we were talking uh, even a couple of weeks ago, you would have said that uh, Rishi Sunak uh, had uh, been uh, hold be below the waterline because of the way he handled various revelations about his wife's tax affairs and also because his e economic policies were unpopular among many of the members of the Conservative Party. And you would say then that, say, someone like Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary, the Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, the Education Secretary as he was, and now the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Nadeem Zahawi, were better options. But that has changed, I think, partly because uh, of what's just happened in the last 24 hours, that Rishi Sunak and uh, Sajid Javid have both, in a way, uh, placed themselves in a different position. Uh, they've placed themselves in a position in uh, Sajid Javid's case as somebody who's saying, I am an honourable man. I cannot, uh, you know, if you want this party to be led by an honourable person, then I'm your man. In the case of Rishi Sunak, he's drawn a policy distinction. And he said, we need to be honest with people and say that we're going through tough times and you can't have everything that you want. If you want tax cuts, you have to cut spending. If you want more spending, you, have to, you can't have a tax cut. And people like David Frost 
who uh, the former Brexit secretary, he called for Boris Johnson to go last night as well. And he's uh, backing something like that. So there are people within the party you know, who are going to, to make their decision along ideological and policy lines as well as the personality. So I think, you know, the thing, uh, what I'm, it's a long way of saying that the contest is more open, I think, than it was a couple of weeks ago. And uh, there will be lots of tactical voting among MPs to decide who they want to stop. And generally speaking, it's a fundamental truth of the Conservative leadership is that almost always the, uh, the, the leader of the Conservative Party is elected not for who they are, but for who they are not. And so uh, it's re- quite often it's a question of trying to stop somebody from getting the job. Boris Johnson, in a way, was an exception to that. But generally speaking, Theresa May got the job because she wasn't Boris Johnson or Michael Gove or whoever she was. It wasn't. And in the same way, it could be that whoever emerges out of this process is not Liz Truss, not whoever else somebody doesn't want. Dennis, we'll follow this throughout the day. But for now, we let you off to your ringside seat. But do keep us up to date. And that's all from us for now. This episode was produced by Declan Conlon and sound was by JJ Vernon. I'm Pat Leahy and thanks for listening.